All right, thank you, everyone. Welcome to the Early Education Show. This is our 73rd episode, 70, episode 73. I'm Liam. <laughs> I'm Lisa. <laughs> and I'm Leanne. Um, and we're here at Historic Redfern for our first ever live show as part of the 14th uh, uh, Social Justice and Early Childhood Conference. We, we could not be more thrilled that our first ever live show is at such an important conference with such a strong history of advocacy and activism. Um, for those who don't know about us and our show, we get together on Skype every week, roughly looking and sounding like this. Um, and we talk slash argue slash laugh about um, everything to do with <laughs> policy, politics and practice in the early education show in Australia. It's free. It's usually under an hour if we're on time. It's never under it's an never hour. Under an hour. <laughs> it's never um, under and we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, so for this episode, of course, given where we are and given who we're with, we, we of course, have to tackle social justice. Um, I do want to say, you know, not, 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 not that I'm suggesting you should go right back to episode one and start listening through to episode 73. That would probably not be a good use of anyone's time. Um, but our first episode was Lisa and I. Leanne came on board in episode two. And our first episode was a discussion about children in detention. So it's pretty exciting to be in the same room as Trish Highfield, who I've read and, and admired for a huge amount of time. And uh, basically what we're also going to discuss today, the, new, the government's new childcare package, the childcare subsidy. Um, and we're going to say a statement, and then I'm going to turn over to Leanne and Lisa to discuss it. But um, our view is that uh, there's, there's one huge issue in social justice in early childhood uh, right now, and that's the childcare package and the childcare subsidy. It's not fun. It's not sexy. There's lots of regulation and bureaucracy and tax policy and all those kind of things to talk about. And it's kind of like we talk about it over and over and over again. We do. So now you get it as well. Um, but it is the single biggest social justice issue facing children, educators and families in the early education <laughs> sector right now. So Lisa, I'm going to start with you. Uh, do you agree with that statement that it's the biggest social justice issue facing the sector right now? And Assuming the answer might be yes, spoilers. <laughs> which part of the package most concerns you from a from a social justice perspective? Yeah, I absolutely do, and it's kind of a pity that it is such a boring issue that um, you know that we rate as the highest social justice issue facing children. After all, it's just a government subsidy; it's just a payment. It's not something really deeply interesting. It's got nothing to do with pedagogy, but. The part of it that most upsets me is the activity test. And Liam and, I, and Leanne were talking about it earlier today and I said, look, you know, someone asked me this week, what, you know, who loses out of the activity test? And I said, it's the people that always lose in our society that loses out of the activity test. And Liam said, yeah, you don't expect, you know, the richer white people in the eastern suburbs to actually have won out of this, do you? And I never did, but I didn't expect the groups that always lose to have lost. So I think of it as a classic kind of neoliberal con. It First of all, it removes the universality of early education and care. It takes what was a universal right for families to have their child in an in a early education and care centre and makes it a reward for those that work. So the, um, uh, the minister actually said when, you know, it was passed, it provides the greatest hours of support to the families who work the longest hours. <coughs> uh, taxpayers' support for childcare is targeted to those who depend on it in order to work or work additional hours. So if you're a good person, if you work, if you're part of, you know, creating the economy, then you get the money. Can I just say, 
show of hands in the room, does anyone know what the original government mandated name for this package was before it became the childcare package? What was its first name? A lot of social justice advocates in the room. Does anyone know? Yeah. Very close. It was the Jobs for Families package. I feel like I am a madman pointing this out, that that was the name of the early childhood reforms for children's access to early childhood education was called, say it with me, social justice. Jobs for Families. Gives you a bit of an idea what their focus may have been, Lisa. Absolutely, and that's the name of the legislation that put this into law. So every time you, your families get a subsidy to have their child at your centre, if you're in a, a, you know, a long daycare centre or a, a you know, family daycare or, or someone that gets it, not in a preschool, it comes out of the Jobs for Families package. And, and that it was pretty much the only thing that came out of the inquiry, the Productivity Commission inquiry, into early childhood education. This is it. Yes, so essentially what it does is it rewards families who are out there creating more economic growth for the economy. Burmo, our minister, Simon Birmingham, said that the reforms will encourage more than 230,000 families to increase their involvement in the early, in workforce participation. So therefore, it's designed, nothing about children, it's designed to get people to work more. Um, the next reason why I hate it, and I do hate it, <laughs> is that it entrenches inequality. You can't get childcare unless you pass the activity test. You can't get a job unless you pass childcare, unless you have childcare. Yeah. So it absolutely entrenches inequality. And also, who are the people that are going to have the time to spend hours and hours in a Centrelink call queue to talk to someone about why their activity, why they're not getting enough subsidised hours? It's not the person on the factory floor, it's going to be the people with time in the middle of the day to have those calls. Um, it's easier for the rich to circumvent. There's a whole heap of exemptions that you, or things that you can do to pass the activity test. <coughs> and one of them is setting up a business. You can do that for six months of every year. You can be crap at it, you can <laughs> fail at setting up your business, but you can set up a business. Now, what sort of people are more likely to set up a, a business? I kind of think it's more likely to be the privileged people than the unprivileged people. Um, uh, it creates more risk for poorer families. If you lie about your activity and say, yes, I work you know, 60 hours a week and you're caught out, you're going to have to pay back the funding. So that's the funding that you've got. That's more of a risk for a family that's already poor than for one that's got money. It was designed by the Productivity Commission. And I don't know about you, but productivity, social justice, I don't think they kind of go well together. It is, allows the creation of new markets in early education and care. So it, it, they expect services to set up markets for children who can only access six hours care a day. So it actually creates new ways of selling early education to families. Um, it makes the job of those who argue for uh, early education 
harder because suddenly we no longer have it called early education. It's all about childcare. It's all about warehousing children. And it's caused division amongst social justice advocates. I don't know if many people are aware here, but what the sector, and by I mean sector, I mean the big organisations that lobby on behalf of the sector, what they went into advocacy about this was that instead of allowing children at the lowest level 12 hours of care a week, they would argue for 15 hours of care. And there were some pe other people that said, 12 hours, 15 hours, what does it matter? It's still nothing. You're like, we shouldn't be doing this. And those organisations went in and argued that. It left the ALP and the Greens with nothing to argue for because the early childhood sector was saying, we just need three more hours a week. So it's reduced our... Um, it's reduced how the... Help me out here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's... It's narrowed the window where we can advocate for. So it's important to realise, as well as Lisa saying they were, the government was saying let's do 12, the sector came along and said let's do 15. It's important to remember prior to July this year, uh, children could access 24 hours. So the sector was already coming in, already willing to accept before the first round of negotiations had happened. It was actually just a two day. Like yeah. 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 Well. Yeah, they, they specified fifteen hours and all the, no, the no, that submission. Same prior yeah, to yeah, prior to yeah. which was twenty, which was yeah, yeah. which was identified as twenty four hours because right. most the majority of centres were open ten or ten and a half hours, some were open twelve. Mm -hmm. So it really narrowed, I think, for advocates the the window of ability to Definitely. to advocate. And, and and I think when you're sort of why go why sort of think oh I'll put something out that I that there that I think might be acceptable as advocates you just put it up there because it's always going to come down here and it's not a house it's not like <laughs> let's negotiate on a house here so it's always got to we've always got to go further than we think that we we need to have and so i think that that's one of the biggest social justice issues affecting children and families today and because of that i would like to see us all advocating with the alp with the greens and in the next election for the absolute abolition of this. There are already um, early childhood advocates who are saying, we need to ask for it to be fixed a bit around the edges. Bugger that. Let's just get rid of the thing. <laughs> it's unfair. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, that when, when you talk to people in terms of understanding that, a child has no control whatsoever over their parents' payslip, their parents' roster, and that applies for... All their fashion sets. All their fashion sets. <laughs> my children will be very happy they can't see me here today. Um, my wife in particular, she was a big gobsmack. Do you need to me. tell listeners what you've got on? No, that's all right. Well, they didn't come to the live show, Lisa. They just, this is the bonus content people in Redfern get today. Um, <laughs> you're welcome, by the way. Um, <laughs> Uh, that children have no control over their parents' payslip or their parents' roster, and that applies at both ends of the spectrum. That applies for absolutely for the people I'm most interested in advocating for, which is um, children experiencing disadvantage or people or children at risk of harm. But it, it equally applies to to children of well-off and wealthy families. And this is always the argument that's flung back in advocates' face about, well, why should we subsidise um, early education and care for for you know people on families over three hundred and fifty thousand dollars? And 
my argument is, well, the children have no control over that either way. A truly universal system, that, arc, that distinction wouldn't matter. We wouldn't be looking at people and going, well, you deserve it and you don't. Because as soon as... And there was a press conference that um, Christian Porter, the social services minister, uh, gave in uh, 2016, and Simon Birmingham has backed this up, which is that we want the... They said they want the subsidy to go to the right families. Mm. Always a really damaging and nervous phrase when you hear that, because... When they say the right families, who's actually benefiting from the access to early education? So they're not saying the right families, they're saying the right children. And the fact that the sector did not explode with anger when that came out, that there were not doors being bashed down at Parliament House going, how dare you decide which children are deserving of access to early education and which are not, will be a matter of shame for this sector for many, many decades to come. Anyway, though. <laughs> We've got some more shame to, to lay out. So, Leanne, I'm going to assume I'm going to assume you disagree, you agree with the, the the idea that this is the biggest social justice issue, issue facing early childhood. Um, which particular issue did you want to sort of bring to everyone's attention? I have to say we're very well behaved today, passing the microphone <laughs> Usually, we're trying to talk over each other. Um, by talking about the issue that I want to talk about, I want to quote Liv, who said, "Why do people have to be so mean?" And really, I think it kind of comes back to that for me is, why does this have to be such mean legislation? It is, it is actually really mean. But I want to focus on um, the, I mean, this, this sector's full of acronyms, BBFs and the Aboriginal Child and Family Centres. So for if you, I don't know what the BBFs are, they're budget-based funded services. And these are services that are predominantly um, Aboriginal services, services established for Aboriginal communities um, and attended predominantly by Aboriginal children and families. And also the Aboriginal Child and Family Centres, which I, you may recall those being funded well back and we were going to have all of these incredible services. And then I, I don't know what proportion we actually have had built and run, but they're wholly Aboriginal owned and operated services and managed services. And what this legislation does is once again cast those services into insecure funding and it uh, reduces the capacity for, uh, once again, for equality. So these services once again reduce the access, um, sorry, not the services, the, the legislation reduces the possibility of access because it's trying again to fit this legislation or fit those services around this legislation, which means that the, some, most of these services now have to abide by the same sorts of um, restrictions, which Lisa's just spoken around the activity test. What this also means is that because that might not be completely fair or equal, the government has said, oh, hang on, we might need to put another little thing over the top of that, which is another acronym, the Community Childcare Fund, I believe this one's called, and this is to then subsidise again the issues that might come up if the other legislation's applied. So if you can sort of think about it, it becomes more and more of an administrative nightmare. And wherever there is in an administration, there is inequality. Because when people are spending time trying to administer a program and trying to fit their services around all of these things, that's time that's not being spent with children and families. And I think that's such an injustice in any centre. And until we have 100%, and I'm going to use this word very apprehensively, culturally competent services, because I don't know what culturally competent means, to be honest. I think that it's just a really weird um, two words together. But until we have services that 
consider all families in the community without any kind of uh, restriction or without any kind of um, injustice or discrimination, then we must have Aboriginal owned and operated services and I maintain we need to continue to have those. But this legislation actually reduces the capacity again for those services to run well within the community. And I might just, um, because I, I'm always apprehensive about speaking on these issues, I think the three of us are, because we feel like we don't know enough and we can never speak on behalf of the community. I want to say um, Geraldine Atkinson's words from SNAKE, who's the Deputy Chairperson of SNAKE, and this is what she says. These services are the lifeblood of our communities. Many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander integrated early years services across the country are concerned that they will not be able to continue critical supports for the children and families that need them the most. We have an open door policy. We can't turn our children in need away. We need a system that has some flexibility to enable us to work closely with those families who are struggling most, not push them away. And I think wherever we have anything that restricts that opportunity to work with children and families, it's not the right solution in any way. And uh, Simon Birmingham has said, we'll give three months and we'll have a check-in with services to see how they're going. But all that means is that he's saying, we'll take three months to get our PR in order <laughs> so that we can get things organised and say the right things in response. So I, I think, you know, it's urging everybody to think about these issues. Who's put outside the system for a whole range of reasons, but also who's having their, um, what's, how the service is having their lives made difficult by all of these different layers of administration and trying to fit around all of the different programs. Why not just fund the whole bloody lot, for goodness sake, really. Like, why do we have so many of these layers that we have to get through before we have equality of education provision for children? Beautiful, thanks, Leanne. Um, now, we know we're in between everyone in the room and lunch, and uh, we, we don't have too many more minutes left to go, but this this package and the reason it's we, we do say it's the biggest social justice issue facing the sector is it, it's policy, it's legislation, and it's and it, and it is what every early childhood service that you know works under the the legislation and the national quality framework has to um, has to abide by. So you know we, we need to make sure we have as many people who are knowing of the effects as possible. So we're going to do a really we we only had a very short amount of time today. We could have talked for around an hour and a half, if not more. As on usual, this. we had to pick two things to focus on. But I'm going to go to Lisa and Leanne. And it's really, really quickly, and we're not allowed to expand on it, unfortunately. It's just pick one thing each that you also wanted to bring to people's attention that you can maybe go and research and find out. We've only got one. I know. I know you've got a big long list, Lisa. You're going to have to pick one. No pressure. I'm going to go to Leanne first. While you say it all in it. one sentence. <laughs> okay. I'm going, to, I'm going to say more than one because I'm, so, I, I'm not really that recalcitrant. So I am going to tell you the things that I think we need to uh, focus on. The national partnerships are, agreements are sort of falling apart and we need to make sure that early childhood education has secure funding. I'd say for at least 10 years, but I reckon if we embed it in... Um, anyway, I won't go on. Um, uh, workforce planning, we need to look at salaries, professional development and uh, targets so that we actually have the right sort of qualifications and enough people to fill those. And I don't know why we're not funding raising quality. We're really not funding raising quality in early childhood settings. 
Okay, I'll go very, very quickly. I want to know who's <laughs> making money out of this. And one of the people that are making money is PwC. Has anyone ever heard of a company called PwC? It's one of those big accounting consultancy companies. Um, up until the end of February, they'd made $6.5 million on work connected to the package in 2016-17 and $1.8 million in 2017-18. And I know they've done a lot of work since. So they've already made you know, $8, 8 million out of it. And it's interesting to note that the current CEO of G8, our biggest corporate childcare provider, was the immediate past um, CEO of, sorry, he's the chairperson of G8. He was the immediate past CEO of PwC. <laughs> money likes playing with money, doesn't it? <laughs> um, the other thing I'd like to talk about is the additional childcare subsidy, which is what, you know, you can go to get additional money. It's all based on outing yourself as incompetent or poor or something like that. And that's something that Eva Cox talks about a lot. She says anything where you have to say that you are different than the majority to get funding is not a fair system. Mm. And so, you know, it just doesn't work. And the fact that it's only 120% in most cases of the normal childcare subsidy means that a lot of parents, like grandparents, etc., now have a gap between what their centre charges and what their subsidy is. Was that short enough? That was, and Liam said I could say one more thing. Um, <laughs> she I, brought whiskey. <laughs> I do have to say, whenever I think of this um, CEO of G8, you, I, and we're always deeply suspicious, but I think we need to be deeply suspicious of someone who pitches to investors, that's right, to investors, that he will give them access to 50,000 children as marketing opportunities. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. And then just one really quick one for me, because I didn't get a chance. Um, <laughs> educators, as you so a big part of this legislation was about removing the requirements for uh, long daycare centres in particular to be open, a minimum number of hours, a minimum of 10. That, that requirement's been removed. And the Education Minister has been really clear that he expects services to charge sessions that will suit families. So six, seven hours. Now, if that takes off, we are already seeing uh, one large organisation, the largest not-for-profit organisation, start, start to run sessions of nine hours at the moment, they will inevitably go down. What will that mean for the sector workforce? Sector pay conditions are bad enough at the moment, at least the majority of educators can expect to get a full-time job. That will inevitably move to permanent part-time or probably more likely casualisation of the entire sector, which is... It's already happening. So we know that's a huge problem. Also, it takes away the focus of that organisation to focus on children and yeah. pedagogy. It's all about... Balancing the books. Absolutely. Yep. So look on balance, we don't think this is a great package. Put that out there. Please refer to the previous 71 episodes of this show. Um, <laughs>All right, I'm here at Redfern, uh, in the heart of Redfern, always such an exciting place to be, with the, a very large group of people who are the incredible committee behind the Social Justice and Early Childhood group, foundation, all the amazing things they do. Now, I'm going to go around, it might take a little bit of time, but I want to hear the stories of these amazing people. Tell us name, background, and what I guess what you do 
in social justice. Okay. Uh, so I'm Stephen Gallen and I'm an early childhood consultant and teacher um, based up in northern New South Wales, in Nimbin. And uh, I guess I've been working for many years around the idea of how we think about children's rights and social justice and what it actually means for us as teachers and educators. There you go. Hi, I'm Catherine Brown and I am an early childhood teacher. Oh, I was actually started untrained assistant and I did my degree and became a teacher and then I did a PhD and now I unschool my children <laughs> and um, in the social justice group. Uh, I'm Jessica Staines, the director of the Koori Curriculum, which is an Aboriginal early childhood consultancy based in Sydney. And so I support services to embed Aboriginal perspectives in their program, connect with their local Aboriginal community while supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families in early childhood settings. Hi, I'm Cathy Gelding. I teach with TAFE New South Wales. I also am a PhD candidate. Hi, <laughs> Felicity McArdle. I'm an early childhood teacher and um, currently I teach at um, QUT in Queensland and so what I do in social... and my, um, one of my main interests is in the arts with young children. I'm Red Ruby Scarlet and I'm a lot of things, <laughs> hilarious mostly, um, but I'm an early childhood teacher. Um, I'm the creative director of Multiverse, which is an educational consultancy and uh, publisher, and I'm one of the conveners. All of those people you've just spoken to um, sit on the board of the Social Justice in Early Childhood Foundation. Fantastic. I've never interviewed six people at once. This is going to be a fun point. We're going to have to put up hands for people who wants to answer their we question. Like diversity. I guess. Um, I, I doubt there's no one who's listening to the show who hasn't heard of the Social Justice and Early Childhood Group before. But just in case there's some mad person under a rock who hasn't, who wants to tell us about where it came from, how it was developed... What was the genesis of Social Justice and Early Childhood? The Social Justice Group came out of a meeting at the Early Childhood Australia Conference in 1996, I think. It was the year John Howard was, uh, unfortunately, um, somehow got in. Um, voted, I think is the word. And... Um, and Betty Hopson was one of the people amongst lots of others and all their names are on our website and they decided that we needed to have um, a community group that was committed to looking at social justice because tolerance was absolutely not enough and so we're kind of the it's like what are the you know it's like um is it Star Trek the new Generation. New generation. Um, yeah, so we, you know, that group has been handed on uh, with a number of different people. And yeah, it's sustained for all of that time. How many years is that? Someone help me with the math, Snorg. Uh, 20. Um, 20 22 years. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we have our annual conference. We do bits and pieces of political work. We, we can um, collaborate with other not for profit and community groups um, like. The educa early education show that we love and like Rainbow Families and others to do really good yummy social justice work. That's great. Um, now uh, so the, the conference is a particularly big I think highlight and I've been very fortunate enough to come to a few even though they've been based in Canberra. Um, like what are, what are the goals and what are the hopes for the conference? This happens you know um, this is our 14th social justice conference um, but what's the what's the sort of thinking and purpose behind the conference? What are you hoping people go away go away with? We hope they feel inspired to do social justice work. Uh, I think what um, Red and Catherine have always done a really good uh, around the program about we have academics, we have union people, we have people, um, educators. So there's a variety of people 
in the profession, variety of qualifications. Um, so yeah, I think there's always been a really good mix of people and there always seems to be a really good vibe at the end that people go off going, yeah, I, I'm going to think about this differently, I'm going to do something differently. Yeah. That's great. People going away wanting to do something is always fantastic. Um, so um, uh, one of the things that sort of, I don't, I don't know they've got launched today, but it was sort of um, promoted and, and was pretty amazing to hear about was the Social Justice and Early Childhood Foundation. Yes. Um, t- t- again, I'm looking for volunteers. Hands, who wants to talk about, you know, uh, uh, you know in terms of telling our listeners about this fantastic foundation and getting involved as well? Very important. Who hasn't spoken yet? I'm looking around at terrified oh, faces. Um, <laughs> um, so the foundation um, was established to extend work that could be um, funded by um, contributions um, that we otherwise can't necessarily undertake in volunteer roles. So um, the the board as we are at the moment um, come together and we're looking at um, what funding we have and what sort of projects that can sort of be started and continue and they would be then free resources for the sector and beyond um, so that that's the kind of work that we'd like to do mainly and we have um, a various ways that we can source income um, for, and to fund those projects and one of them is um, the moment we're trying to um, sell t-shirts and tote bags which have our um, anti-bias artwork on them and a, a pretty nice message um, so that's one way that we'd um, be able to get income and we're looking at also grants um, from various places that will in the future might be something that we can tap into. Wonderful. And um, if people want to find out more about the foundation, who's memorised the, the email address or the web address? This is what I'm always bad at. Does anyone know where to find it online? I do. <laughs> it's sjiec.org. Yeah. And you can do forward slash um, foundation and that will take you to the foundation page. And we also have um, an email if you needed to contact anyone. That's foundation at sjiec.org. Yeah. I've got to say as well, you know, as someone who works in the sector, one of the greatest resources in the sector out there, and I very rarely say this about a Facebook group because they're all mainly make me want to bleed out of my eyes and bash my head against the keyboard, (laughs) is the Social Justice and Early Childhood Facebook group, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's actually, it's a lot of work and it is a a huge free resource for the sector. So I guess two-part question, first part isn't a question, first part is thank you. It's so nice to have someone nice to go on Facebook and talk about early childhood. Um, But how important, you know, that's probably where most people have heard of the Social Justice and Early Childhood group is actually the Facebook page. Does anyone want to sort of talk about, I guess, the, the thinking behind the page and, and, and how it and how it works and I guess what it does for the sector? It came about because Catherine Bound one day in a pub said we should we should have page. All the best ideas happen in a pub. That's where the early education show came from. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I think she had the technical nous as well uh, to get it up all going. And I think I remember when there was like 60 members. Um, so it, yeah, it's been wonderful to see. You can show off now. How many is it now? Uh, I think it's 65. about... <laughs> yeah, 65. Uh, are we nearly hitting 5,000 members? Yeah. Yeah, yeah over. Yeah. Uh, and really, it's a... Look, there are guidelines mm. there for, for people to follow. I know, I've broken them. Sorry, Red. Excellent. Excellent, uh, but 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 yeah, it's it's really um, for people to talk about what is not being talked about on other pages, and yeah, people seem to like it, so that's good. Yeah, 
And it's actually a great, I actually, it's, it's a resource. It's a, for, particularly for students and people who are beginning to get an early child, it is an incredible resource of people, very smart and amazing people, actually giving their time on this page to have some incredible discussion. So it's really worth checking out. We'll include a link in there. Um, but I know I'm, I'm in between you guys heading between now, and so I want to thank the, the Committee of the Social Justice and Early Childhood Group. Thank you for having the Early Education Show today. Thank you on behalf of the sector for doing this work. You're all amazing. We really thank everyone for their time today. Just really quickly, if, uh, if you haven't heard the show before, go to earlyeducationshow.com or look up the show on your fancy devices in your podcast app. Um, if you're looking for particular episodes to find, The Magnificent Red Ruby Scarlet has been a guest before, um, as has um, we've had Verena Heron, who couldn't make it today, and Bettina, who spoke before, has also been on an episode. Um, we really enjoy... We're going to have Mel soon. We lined one up. Oh, excellent. Oh, wow. <laughs> You haven't run that by me. I'm the, I'm the producer. That's all right. You're the Martel. Um, it's about Martel's, Martel's been on the show. We've had you know lots of people who are smart. We also have us. political people like Amanda Rishworth and Jenny McCarkus from Victoria. Yeah. We but, ha- and Kate Ellis. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. for some reason, people talk to us. We have no idea why. I know. I keep <laughs> promising them money and then not paying them. Um, but it's basically this. And it's, it's every week. It's free. We love doing it for the sector. We'd love to get more listeners. So look us up, Facebook, Twitter, earlyeducationshow.com. And send us topics that yeah. you want us to cover. Yeah. Um, but until we hear from you next or until our listeners online hear from us next week, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. Thank you, Rekha. <laughs> You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leah McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.